I have fixed my mind on another time. And that is today, today, and today. Until he comes. I've got good news for you. Jesus is coming soon. You can take that to the bank. Let's pray. Oh, God. What's that prayer that ends all of Holy Scripture? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Please. But don't come if the people we love, if our own hearts aren't ready. You're giving us that time, and all we have is today, and today, and today. At the moments we wrap up worship with right now, equip us and prepare us for our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Once upon a time, there was a group of men. I don't want to call them smarty pants because that doesn't sound very respectful, but you know the kind of people I'm talking about, the know-it-alls. They're called Pharisees. One day they accosted the young teacher-preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. They said, we have a question for you. It was a trap. It was about marriage. Marriage. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, reminds me of something he wrote once when he was contemplating preaching on marriage. And I'll, I'll put his words on the screen here. How I dread preaching on the estate of marriage. Give me any other subject. Not this one, please. The lax authority of both the spiritual and temporal swords, that would be the church and the state. So these two authorities, church and state, the lax authority has given rise to so many dreadful abuses and false situations that I would much prefer neither to look into the matter nor to hear of it, but timidity is no help in an emergency. So I must proceed. I must try to instruct poor, bewildered consciences and take up the matter boldly. Well, it's a whole lot easier today to preach about marriage. You know why? Because this book begins with a marriage, and this book ends with a marriage. You have the marriage of Adam and Eve in the beginning, and you have the marriage of the Lamb at the end. So it's not so hard because everything in between the two marriages is all about marriage. So it's not so tough. They did a survey of the American public in 2018. It was called the American Political and Social Behavior Survey. Listen to this. Two out of three Americans, all right, two-thirds of Americans who responded disagreed with the opinion that marriage is an outdated institution. (laughs) That's pretty good. Two-thirds of Americans are saying, no, no, this is still viable. Marriage is still viable. I'm not abandoning it. So the Pharisees, these, these wise guy Pharisees come walking up. And by the way, they're out to kill Jesus. And in a few weeks from when they raise this question, they'll have to accomplish their agenda. He'll be dead. They ask him about marriage. Well, it really wasn't about marriage. They asked him about divorce. But Jesus takes their question on divorce, flips it around. He says, let me tell you about marriage. And two-thirds of Americans ought to be pretty happy with his response. Open your Bible if you brought it with you today or you got it on your device to Matthew chapter 19. So the first gospel of the, of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19. Take a look. Take a look for yourself. Matthew chapter 19. And we're going to drop down and begin, well, right up near the top of the, uh, the chapter. We're going to begin in verse 3. 
Now, I've got it in the NIV here, but I'm going to put the message. You ever read the message? Boy, sometimes you want a fresh reading. Just pull it out. And so let's, let's read this. and Keep your Bible open, but we'll read it in the message. One day, the Pharisees were badgering Jesus. Is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Pause button. Do you know what? That is a terribly male chauvinistic kind of question. There's not a word about the woman. Hey, come on. Can we men divorce our wives for any reason at all? And the NIV adds, NIV adds, uh, when when, when they, uh, they translate this, they say for any and every reason. Chauvinist. But Jesus catches them by surprise. They want to know about divorce. And he says, let me tell you, let me tell you about marriage. So he goes on. Jesus answering them said, haven't you read in your Bible that the creator originally made man and woman for each other, male and female? Yeah, I read that in the Bible. Jesus simply dials up the the beginning book of the Old Testament. That was the only Bible he had back then. And there it is, Genesis 127, male and female created he them. So Jesus grabs that line. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Marriage is not about the man. Marriage is not about the woman. Marriage is about both the man and the woman. Marriage is all about the couple. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his, in his, for me, terribly inspiring commentary, writes this in response to that. If God had supremely intended solitary life, God would have created humans one by one. Well, that makes sense to me. If God had intended polygamous life, God would have created one man and several women. Hmm. If God had intended homosexual life, God would have made them two men or two women. Keep reading. But that God intended monogamous heterosexual life is shown by God's creation of one man and one woman. Then by immediately commanding the two of them to reproduce... Because he, he says right after, right after that in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. God showed that he honored their sexual union and that this union is good and it is his will. But Jesus isn't through yet. Pick it up again. Verse 4, and he answered, haven't you read in your Bible that the creator originally made man and woman for each other, male and female? And because of this, a man leaves his father and mother and is firmly bonded to his wife, becoming one flesh, no longer two bodies, but one. Because God created this organic union of the two sexes, no one should desecrate his art by cutting them apart. Everybody knows the story about God, the creator, putting Adam to sleep, right? A little bit of anesthesia there, and he's sound asleep. And then what does he do? He doesn't go to his foot. He doesn't go to his crown. He takes it right out of the side. He removes that rib, and out of that rib, the beautiful form of Adam's life companion. Now, Jacques Ducan reminds us of that story. And then writes this. This is, this is, this is good. Jacques Ducan in his... Uh, Groundbreaking commentary on Genesis. The divine removal of man's rib and creation of the woman grounds the special and unique connection between man and woman, a bond so powerful and exclusive that it will not tolerate, that it will tolerate no other connection, not even that with parents. 
Now, look, I've been a while. I've been around for a while, and I've known parents, my own parents, and I know myself as a parent. But I'm concerned when I see a parent, no, I'm serious, when I see a parent, it could be a father, it could be a mother, hovering over a young adult or even an adult child who is married, still attempting to exert authority over that grown-up child or to constantly intervene in the circumstances and details of that child's life. Mom and dad, time out. Back off. A man leaves his father and mother. How does Dukan put it? This bond is so powerful and exclusive that it will tolerate no other connection, not even that with parents. Huh. Bruner goes on. The joining, and I like this, the joining of a man and a woman is so profound that the joining creates a third reality in the world, one flesh marriage. So God, in the beginning, God created man. In the beginning, God created woman. And he created a third. In the beginning, God created man and woman as a one flesh. They are, they are separate, a separate creation. My, oh, my. And that's why, by the way, you'll have the Apostle Paul arguing why you should not have sex with a prostitute, why you should not have sex with a wife who is not your wife, why you should not have sex with a husband who is not your husband. Paul's making the point right here. Put it on. I love it in the, in the message again. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in Scripture, the two become one. The very line that Jesus accesses with the Pharisees, Paul says, guess what? I go to that same line too. The two become one. A one flesh marriage is a new creation. Never existed before. My The Apostle Paul argues against sexual promiscuity from this creation-rooted truth. Uh, this is something. Physical union brings metaphysical communion. Hmm. Sexual intercourse delivers a spiritual interconnection so deep that it should be entered only where there are what, 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 what? Strong undergirding foundations of spiritual faith and biblical marriage. Take a look at those two ingredients. You want to have sex with somebody? You got to have those two. You want it to be a happy sex? You want it to be a fulfilling sex? Of course you do. It has to, you have to have those two. You have to have a foundation of spiritual faith and a foundation of a biblical marriage. Then sex works. If you don't have those two, I'm telling you, if you're, just, if you're just hooking up, I'm telling you, you are playing with dynamite where the fuse is already lighted. And when that thing goes off, it blows everybody to smithereens. Nobody gets out of that sexual relationship un, unscathed. It's a big deal. A very big deal. Wow. Outside of those two foundations, spiritual faith and biblical marriage, uh-uh, don't do it. Don't let him sweet talk you, girl. Don't believe him. He's not right. He's lying to you. He's using you. That's all he's doing. Hmm. Yeah, Dwight, but, but, but Dwight, what about same-sex marriage? Ooh, there's a subject. Same-sex marriage? Glad you asked. Two weeks from today, right now, two weeks from now, 
title of the little homily will be The Pope and Same-Sex Marriage. We're not going to duck it out. If this is a series, a little short five-part series on, on marriage, we're not going to duck that. We'll come do it. Two weeks from today, you'll be right here. We'll talk about it together, you and me. And oh, by the way, don't miss one week from today. Pastor Rodley has already mentioned this. My new friends, David and Beverly Sedlicek, they are family life and marriage specialists, therapists. And they're going to be in the pulpit together. And we're going to hear it like it is. Next week, don't be anywhere, right here. You're going you're to get blessed, all right? It's very interesting, by the way, that when Jesus speaks to these Pharisees here in Matthew 19, 6, Matthew uses a most unusual word. So this is from the NIV now. So they, the man and woman, are no longer two but one flesh. Now watch this. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together. Here's how it really should read. You remember a few, uh, a few days before this incident with the, with the Pharisees. Jesus speaks this most beautiful, uh, you can do it out loud with me, this most beautiful promise in, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, come to me, all you who labor and are what? You're burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, I want you to notice the next line. So this, this, this is that, that five-star promise of Jesus. The next line in verse 29, take my yoke. See that word yoke? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The same word here for yoke, and it's a noun, is used as a verb in Matthew 19.6, so we could actually read Matthew 19.6 this way. Therefore, what God has yoked together, let no one separate. Do you know why oxen have yokes? Because it's too much to pull for just one guy. When you put a yoke on an oxen, it's good news for the oxen because somebody's going to come up real close, bumping shoulders, and we're going to do this together. So that when Jesus says... When Jesus says what God has yoked together, he's describing that, that glorious benefit. A very special somebody, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart, life to life for the rest of your life. You're going to be bumping into each other the whole way. Why? Because you're yoked together. That's the deal about marriage. God yokes you together. You don't have to wander through life and hook up here and date there and never know. You can get yoked up. Therefore, what God has yoked together, let no one separate. Wow. Jesus says, take, take my yoke upon you. Hey, wait a minute. If Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, and God says, I'm going to yoke you two together, if you two together are yoked and you are yoked to Jesus, you have the best of every world on this planet. Because you have what, what Bruner, and I'm so grateful. I have never seen this before. Never, never, never till, till Bruner showed this to me. I'm so grateful that he, re, he revealed this. When there is a threefold yoke, you and her, you and him, and Jesus, when there is a threefold yoke, that is, when there is a disciple to Jesus couple, they both are yoked. Oh, this is really the best. When they are both yoked to Jesus, the prospects are downright exciting. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. That's why people are serious about, hey, 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 yo, 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 yo. Make sure that uh, whoever you're marrying is yoked to Jesus. That's a good deal. Why? Because then you got the threefold. You got everything pulling for you now. 
Don't get yoked up. No, 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 no. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Share the same yoke with Jesus. But the problem is, I don't mind telling you, Christian marriage is in trouble today. And by the way, it's not just Christian marriage. Marriages are in trouble today. According to the sociologist Mark, Mark Regnerus, and we met him last week in his new book, The Future of Christian Marriage. And I'm going to say it again for a reason. The book is published, this sociologist's book, and teaches at the uh, University of Texas, Austin. The book is published by the Oxford Re- University Press. And I make the point because some people tend to dis- oh, is the Christian researcher? <laughs> nothing. Nothing to it. We have a whole campus full of Christian researchers. And guess what, researchers? There is something very significant to what you do. Oxford University Press comes along and says, are you kidding? That is great research, and we will put our name on the research. So don't go bad-mouthing. Well, it's just a Christian researcher. <laughs> Regnerus. This, 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 will, this will be, uh, this, will, this will start uh, these numbers. Look at this. As recently as 1970, okay, 80% of Americans between the ages of 25 and 34 were married. So the young people, the, the young adults who are here right now are generally in that range. Not 25. Yeah, we go down to 18 in college, throw the teens in as well. But this is just talking about... This age bracket, 25 to 34, 80% of them back in 1970 were married. Now, watch this. But by 2015, that 80% had shrunk to only 40% with no sign of recovery or even leveling off. Never married young Americans now notably outnumber their married counterparts. So don't feel bad if you're not married. You outnumber those in your age demographic slice who are married. That's not, a, that's not bad or evil, but what's going on? What's going on is marriage postponement. Now, I need you to really follow this. Marriage postponement. What, what, what are you talking about, marriage postponement? Well, that means the mean age in marriage is rising in nearly all these 15 countries. He studied 15 countries. Now, mean age means half of, the, half of the marriages began at this age, above that age, and half are below it. So the mean age in marriage is rising in, near all, in nearly all of these countries. By 2014, 2016, women in numerous countries displayed a mean age at first marriage of over 30. It's going up. Now, by the way, and these are his words, 30 is the age at which women's fertility tends to begin a slow decline and is generally a popular benchmark in the minds of many women. I need to get married right around 30. I mean, you know, please. He goes on. In most countries in the table, those 15, the average age at marriage climbed at least three or four years in just two decades. Up, 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 up. Well, so... Well, here's what here's what the so is. What did I learn? In short, marital delay matters. Postponement drags down marriage rates in all regions of the world. There are less and less people getting married. That's his point. Again, we ask the question. Well, what's 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 going on here? There's a fascinating conclusion that some of the sociologists have made, and Regnerus agrees with them. And that is, we have, we have moved as a culture from marriage as a foundation for life to marriage as a capstone to life. Now, you say, Dwight, what are you talking about? Well, here's what he's talking about. When you build a building, you've got to have a foundation. Everybody knows that. You've got to have a good, strong foundation. Then you can build on that foundation. That's the way it used to be. But sometimes you, you, you want a capstone. 
What's a capstone? That's what goes on the top. So when they built this church, the steeple went last. That would be the, the capstone. Uh, it could be a, gable, a beautiful gabled window right at the top of, near the top of your roof. You put that in last. Whoa. It's a cherry on top. And what, what the sociologists are saying is we're moving from marriage as a foundation. Hey, girl, you and me, we're going to do this together. I don't have much. You don't have much. But the two of us with love and a little bit of initiative, we can do it. We can conquer the world together. We can. We can. Let's go. Marriage begun that way, and marriage, hey, I'm not ready for getting married yet, man. I got to get a PhD, and then I got to work for one. I got to invest in the stock market. I got to have a little, a little uh, nest egg ready to go, and then I'll be ready. That's what's happened to, that's what's happening to marriages. Everybody's waiting for the capstone, and you put it on top. What's that mean? Keep reading. Most no longer think of marriage as a formative institution but rather as the institution they enter once they think they're fully formed. At last, I'm ready. Hallelujah. I think I'll get married. Increasing numbers of Christians think the same way. Yep. When marriage was considered foundational to the adult life course, what happened? More people entered into matrimony and did so earlier than they do today, typically by several years. Keep reading. There was an emphasis on building something, a family, a household, perhaps a career, financial success. Foundational marriages were commonly characterized by love but were intended to be practical. Two people taking shelter together and celebrating what achievements they could muster as a team, even if their roles were distinctive, and they often were. One more line. The shift has gone largely unnoticed over the past half century. What's everybody talking about here? Well, you have parents now advising children. Hey, hey, honey, honey, slow down, slow down. You don't want to just just marry that boy. You got to finish school first. And when you finish school, then you get a good job. Listen, don't just take the first one that comes along either. Look around for a while. Now, parents are well-meaning when they give this kind of counsel. But guess what goes into the brain of the young, young adult? Well, I mean, this is, this is, this is high-risk stuff. Oh, you're right. I better not go in it. And they become paralyzed by this idea of taking too big a risk. As a result, many Christian young adults sense that putting oneself in the trust of another person, whoo, it's foolish, it's risky. Many choose to wait out the risk sometimes for years to see how a relationship will fare before committing. Wow. Is this a big deal? Man, here comes the megaphone now. This is a big deal. Here comes the megaphone. I cannot overemphasize how monumental, how consequential, and how subtle this shift is. Marriage is morphing away from being a populist institution in which most of the world's adults participated to becoming an elite, voluntary, consumption-oriented, and oft-temporary arrangement, end quote. And then this stunning conclusion. This is what blew me out of the water. The more that marriage is repackaged and sold in the West as a capstone rather than a foundation, the higher up the social ladder marriage keeps climbing. Keep reading. Today, these, the, the, the italics are mine. Today, marriage increasingly appears as an upper middle class symbol. Marriage need no longer be a foundation. Mm -mm. In fact, marriage isn't necessary, but it is still desired. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. Have you heard of these destination weddings? Come on, you girls have, I know. Destination weddings. Man, you hope you never get invited to one of those because they don't pay for your way. If, trust me, if, unless you're the preacher. If, if, uh, and that's just a little hit. Uh, but if you're, if you're getting married in Tahiti, 
Man, you got to buy the ticket. You got to get your own hotel room. Why don't we just do this at the house or in the church? But anyway, they have these destination weddings. But here's what's happened. Our culture has turned destination weddings into destination marriages. And it only comes when you're all ready and you have everything in in place and you have that portfolio and you have that good job and you have two cars. And then, capstone, mistake. I'm going to show you something. we got a lot of social justice people here. What that, what's that mean? People that are conscious about, conscientious about, is this social justice? Should I be speaking up? I'm going to give you a reason to start speaking up right now. Listen to this. Our market-driven, capitalistic focus on life has rendered marriage in its glittering online depictions as beyond the reach of entire swaths of social, racial, and economic groups. We've turned it into this destination marriage, and you have to have everything in place, and then you can get married. And there are people looking at each other, and they're saying, I know, I know that's what they say. That's what they say on the, uh, on the screen, but no, I, I can't afford this. And you know what's happening? People are cohabiting, cohabitation. They're living together. Well, I can't afford it. Honey, I can't, we, can't, we can't have that kind of a wedding. We're not even talking wedding now. Marriage is just too expensive. This is a socioeconomic, racial, social justice issue. Sure it is. We have outpriced marriage to average Americans. And that is a big deal. Why? Who gave us the right to do that? Who gave us the right? When God created it as a foundation for human life and success and love, and we've turned it into this capstone, maybe by the time you're 40, you'll be ready. Maybe by 45, Who gave us the right to do that? And so the numbers are dropping. Postponement. The ages are getting higher and higher. Wait. Wow. In the words of Christopher Lash, in his book, Haven in a Heartless World, the sanctity of the home is a sham in a world dominated by giant corporations. Welcome to America today. I don't care what your uh, economic ideology happens to be. This is a world now dominated by giant corporations. If you shop at Amazon, you shop at a giant, giant, giant corporation. If you stop by Walmart on the way home, trust me, we're in a world now. And it has created the sanctity of the home is a sham. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. I submit... Let me go back because I skipped one. There is something corrosive to marriage and family in the current economic age. I submit that it is the intrusion of market mentality into our homes, our marriages, and even our bedrooms. The West has allowed economic considerations to co-opt, colonize, and direct our most intimate relationships, husband to wife and parent to child. How so? Here are a few ways I see it happening in the United States right now. And see if you don't agree. Here they come from the sociologist. Number one, the notion... Oh, I thought this was something. The notion of a Sabbath day of rest is a distant memory, it cuts into corporate profits. And I'm sorry we can't give you that time. It's happening all over this country. You're working a blue-collar job at McDonald's. You're not going to get this. You're not going to get a special little break. It'd be wealthy enough to be able to dictate your own terms. Here's what's happening. Here's another one. We have fewer children, so we... 
we tell ourselves, so we can invest more in them. <laughs> and by the way, having fewer children in the context of small families, children naturally learn to be served rather than to serve. That's what's happening. You got two kids. There's nobody else competing for, my, for, for attention now. The child says, uh, no, I'm not going to go get that. Bring it to me. Garcon, come over here. I need some help. Waiter, come on. Well, of all the gall, kid, where'd you get that? <laughs> Your kid, you don't have many of me, do you? Better take care of me. Yeah. The implications are enormous. Keep reading. We work too many hours, convinced we're doing it for our families. You know, I'm doing it for the kids, and we're putting money away now. Good night. When does this rat race stop? It doesn't. We are strategic about providing opportunities for our children to get ahead of others. We're going to get better. We're going to get in a better school. We're going to get our kids there. This whole getting into Ivy League schools business, what was that? Parents competing with each other to get their kids where they thought they deserved to be. We've done it to ourselves. We've become suckers for ad-driven social media, which fosters dissatisfaction. I'm not happy with, with the way I look. I'm not happy with the way I shop. I'm not happy with the way I dress. I'm not happy with anything. Why? Because I saw that. And I've been told. Oh, man. Here's a good one. With few friends, we have to pay lots of money in order to be listened to. Take a while to get that. They're called psychologists and psychiatrists. Nobody listens to you now. Everybody's too busy. So you paid a man, paid a woman. So she just sit there and listen, which you've been longing for all along. One more. We've created a lucrative in industry by outsourcing the care of our own parents. It's happened, hasn't it? He concludes, these are not shocking observations. I'm guilty of most of them. He writes, most of, our, most of us are also guilty, aren't we? Oh, we are. So what did Jesus say about marriage? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And wow, the two of them will become one flesh. Really? So they are no longer two. They're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let no corporate agenda. Let no rat race for more money. Let nothing, let no human being, let no thing come between you. And her, that nothing separates you. I want to end with a story. It's told by the business executive and leadership guru, Fred Smith. And I'm reading here one of my treasured memories, he writes. Comes from a donut shop in Grand Saline, Texas. There was a young farm couple sitting at the table next to mine. He was wearing overalls. She was dressed in a gingham outfit. And after finishing their donuts, he got up to pay the bill, but I noticed she did not follow him out. And then he came back to her after he had paid the bill, and he stood right in front of her, and she put her arms around his neck, and he stooped down and lifted her up. And when he lifted her up, she was wearing a full-body brace. He backed out, 
the front door, carrying her, heading toward his pickup truck. And everybody in that donut shop was silent and watching as he opened the door and gently placed her inside. Nobody said a word until a waitress remarked almost reverently, he took his vows seriously. Hmm. That's what Jesus' point is. Jesus takes your vows seriously. Marriage, his gift to the human race. What God has yoked together, let no one, no one, no one take apart. It's time we all said amen to that kind of a marriage. What do you say? Yeah, amen, amen. Whether you're young or aged, amen. Good for you, Jesus, for standing up for us. Amen. Let's go to your Connect card real quick here, and then I want to pray with you. My next step today, put it on the screen for you. With two out of three Americans, I agree that marriage is not an outdated institution, and I'll do all of my power to preserve the marriages of others and or my own marriage. Boy, count me in. Check, check, check. Please pray for me and my marriage. I want to tell you something. If you put a check mark there and you can put an email address on the other side or right above it, put an e- email address there, we will pray for you by name, by name. We don't need any details. We'll pray for you by name. Box number three, I would like to get married someday. Please pray my marriage will be a threefold yoke with my partner and with Jesus. Put a check mark there. We'll pray for you in advance. Why not? You'll be ready when the day comes. I promise. Yeah. Why not? His gift to us. I want to pray with you right now. Oh, God. What you have yoked together, let no one take it apart. Teach us to value marriage as Jesus did. And please be with that young man, be with that young woman contemplating marriage. Put your arms around them. And please be with that not-so-young man and that not-so-young woman contemplating giving up on their marriage. Put your arms around them. Oh, Jesus, if anyone can save marriage, it's got to be you. So would you please wrap your nail-scarred arms around all of us right now and hold us, hold us tight. As we journey on with you, we pray in your name. Amen.